Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. I wanted to start off this episode with an excerpt from a piece of poetry that I think perfectly encapsulates this past couple of weeks. It was written and published by Eric Carmen in 1975. <clears throat> Living alone, I think of all the friends I've known, but when I dial the telephone, nobody's home, all by myself. Don't wanna be. Oh, Hey, copyright, my. copyright. Hello, Rebecca. I figure that's recognizable. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't looked into how many seconds we could actually have. That's why it was a dramatic reading. Oh no. <laughs> I've had fun talking to myself while you were on podcast sabbatical, but it's so good to have you back. You've still been listening though. What have you thought? I have. I always listen. Sometimes in the car, sometimes that's sounding like a Dr. Seuss novel now. I listen in the car. I listen in the, never mind. And I love having you back for today's episode with Linda Lee Rogers. Linda Lee, it's just one of those names that make you want to play hopscotch. She wanted me to say her, her maiden name as well, because so many people in that area would recognize her last name because the family was around. And, and what area would this be, Sarah? The area of uh, Cedar, Minnesota. If you haven't heard of it, that's okay. It's just a little, little place. Uh, Linda and I, we've been in each other's sphere since I was a wee young one. Her son and I were in the same class in elementary school. Aww. Yeah. Sarah and pigtails. That should go in the show notes. I don't know if I wore a lot of pigtails. I had a very like blunt um, bang and very, very blonde hair as a youngster. What about you? Huh. I've always been blonde. Any unfortunate, you know, childhood haircuts? Uh, actually fourth grade, a girl who shall remain unnamed, uh, was playing with scissors and chopped my bangs off while I was leaning over her desk um, my mom was irate and there what was a parent- little, mm. uh-huh. Yeah. There were some parent teacher conferences going on there. Yeah. <laughs> Linda has donated a couple of photographs of herself growing up in Cedar. And one of them is the most adorable, like pigtailedness. So you're definitely going to have to check the show notes for that one. That's brilliant. What is it about childhood memories that we we just gravitate back to them as being the perfect idealism of our lives. Your memories growing up are sometimes rose colored and it's the joy of summer. A little note for listeners. uh, I did have to do a little creative editing during this interview because midway through it at the history center, Rebecca came into the building hollering, hello. She said to leave that in, to be fair. (laughs) Shall we let everybody listen to Linda Lee? Yes. Uh, The interview itself ended up going for about an hour. 
So I had to edit it down for podcast length, which means that some of the like scene setting and talking about it um, is at the beginning. And she really gets into some amazing stories about halfway through. So go through the scene setting and enjoy all of the smiles. I want to welcome you, Linda Lee Rogers, to the Historical Society. Thank you so much for coming in on Monday. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Sarah. We're going to deep dive into uh, one of Anoka County's unofficial cities today. That would be Cedar. What is your connection to Cedar? I was born and raised in Cedar, and uh, actually I was born in the old Anoka Hospital, which is a little piece of history a lot of people don't even know existed. Before there was Mercy Hospital, there was on Ferry Street a two-story house that had been converted to a hospital, and that's where I was born. So I haven't really moved very far in my life over all these 70 years. But um, I was raised in Cedar once I got home from the Anoka Hospital. And even as a kid, I had a tender feeling for my surroundings that I was growing up with and the people, because it was such a tiny town. Everybody knew each other and took care of each other. Where was it located? Like, orient us in the county. Okay, Cedar is roughly between uh, Soderville and County Road 9. And it's on a little puddle of water called Swan Lake. The town itself is only about five short blocks long and two short blocks wide. And it's right next to the railroad tracks. What official city does it um, reside in today? Cedar was never incorporated, and it is part of Oak Grove Township. In the museum here, when I first started working, I would come across these letters that were just addressed to Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so, Cedar, Minnesota. Uh, the post office route actually changed over the years. I know a little bit about that because my uncle, who lived next door to me in Cedar, was the postal carrier for many, many years. And even today, of course, the address is Cedar because of the post office through which mail flows, but it was never incorporated. And probably a, a map maker would say it's Oak Grove. When does something become official and when does it not? Right. Interesting well, debate. Yeah. Well, and I think Cedar is more than just a place that's plat platted out on a map. It's really an idea. It's a time of history um, closely related to the railroad, rise and fall of the railroad, and the people who came together in industry and a sense of being a neighbor and made this little town thrive. And there's a memory of that from the, you know, that the oldsters in the area hold. And maybe there's a mystique about it for those who have only heard. I'm glad we have you here today so that we can let more people know about it. It sounds like a really special place in your heart. And I know it's a goal of yours to write down as much history of Cedar 
that you can. Well, I need to backtrack a little bit and honor a couple of authors who've already written about cedar. The first person is Karen Gallagher. In the 1970s, she was a young mom living in Cedar, and her son, who was a Boy Scout, had a project regarding neighborhood history, and so she was engaged in helping him with that, and she discovered there really wasn't a written history of Cedar. And so she went about, for a year, researching Cedar through the Historical Society, and through traveling around the neighborhood and getting stories from families. I think this is so incredible that she did that without the internet, uh, just a manual typewriter as far as I know, and Speedy Copy and Anoka did the, did the book making. <laughs> but she had photos, uh, 30, 40 photos at the back of this little booklet and some of the real basic nuts and bolts of the parts of Cedar, churches, businesses, community events, that kind of thing. And uh, it's really a nice launching pad. I didn't want to mess with what she had written, so I did meet with Karen, and I got her permission. She was so gracious about it. I got her permission to sort of plump up what she had started with. So I maybe can extend that history beyond the 1975 point where she you know, had, had to stop because that's where she was. And with writing new, the, new resources that she didn't have available. Oh, exactly, exactly. Then as I began the process, there was this other remarkable resource from a female author. Her name was Mae DeLong. Her granddaughter, who's about my age, um, clued me in, shared with me this collection of poetry, newspaper articles, um, advocacy articles that May had written from about 1915 to the mid-1950s. And it's really a chronicle of neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor activity in Cedar. It's also written in verse, which <laughs> which is a lost art, I believe. But she, in the most charming way, conveys facts about Cedar and the personalities of the people who live there, including my own relatives. So, for instance, my grandmother had died before I was ever born. And I always wondered, what was she like? It's, my dad also died shortly after I was born, so he wasn't there to tell me stories of my grandma, his mother. and. Here in this collection from May DeLong was a tribute written about my grandma. She had been a member of the WSCS, the Women's Christian Society Association, something like that, uh, part of the Methodist Church. And it was a two-page poem celebrating my grandma. And I felt so much closer to her, like I knew her as a person after reading that. And I was able to share that then with my sister and brother too because they did, didn't get to know her either. So it was just a remarkable treasure. It's not just about my family, it's about all kinds of families in Cedar and um, their personalities are revealed with, within her writing. So that was another really great piece of writing. And finally, I have this 
Um, this is not a female author. This is my uncle, who is a male, and lived to be 102, actually. He was born in 1903. And he wrote in verse his autobiography, and there is a lot of cedar history in that autobiography, including something that was probably a little, little uh, sharp-edged for our family, and that is Sims Road, what is now called Sims Road, on the north side of the Cedar area, was originally Homer Lee Road. That would be named after my great-grandpa. And in the poem, Uncle Herb muses, why the switch? We don't know. And that I'll probably never be able to research the answer to. It's so interesting, the things that change over time, that don't know the reason why because nobody wrote it down right or nobody shared it and part of that you were mentioning to me is following the story back even before Minnesota was a state well thanks for bringing that up this is something over the last few years that has really touched my heart and that is the need to acknowledge that history did not begin in the 1850s. History began, we don't even know when, but we know that human history in Minnesota goes back at least 17,000 years, and archeology span bears that out. How can we listen to Native American voices and find out what oral traditions, what oral histories might inform what we already know from 1850 and forward. And understanding that when the settlers of Cedar come in, they're not coming into some place that's barren of people or history. And right, exactly. When these white settlers are moving in, did Cedar have uh, some type of anchor to draw people to the area? They're coming because of the railroad, or because of the promise of the railroad. It was built right about 1900, and that's when the town was platted. People had lived in the area prior to that, because of that push and that promise. Um, and they had a name for the area that is sort of mysterious. It was called SNAP. And often it was written in capital letters, S-N-A-P. What it amounted to was a mailing address. Now remember, there was no real mail service then out to this area. So Reuben Guy, who lived in a house which actually wound up being next to the railroad tracks, but the tracks weren't there when the house was built. Reuben Guy had a little slot in his house, in the side of his house, where people could come by and drop letters. I suppose if they had packages, they had to knock on the door. But at any rate, Reuben would, maybe once or twice a week, take all of these into Anoka, who evidently had we're, postal we're service. We're talking wagons at this point. We are, we're talking horse and wagons. And uh, then he would bring back items as well. Now, of course, in order for that to happen, you need some kind of identification and SNAP was that identification. I had never come across that. Where are these settlers coming from? 
um, what locations? I was surprised. I thought, oh, most of the people who came would have been from Ireland. Uh, and there were a lot of Irish people, but there were people from all over Europe, in, into Russia, Romania, Poland. Where were you finding all of these places that people are coming from? How were you learning about that? I looked at the census information. Were there any moments that really um, broke a bias for you or an assumption that you had as you were looking at like, the ages or composition of these families moving in? Yes. I, th I think that had this image for me of these young people coming out. Well, the people coming to the Minnesota area were not necessarily young at all. And some of them had families, had started families, and were having more children into their late 30s and into their 40s, even late 40s, some of them. Also, the mixed up composition of families, just like today, where there would be maybe um, a member of the older generation living with a family or cousins. It wasn't just tied up with a bowl, every family was the same. Families were different even then. What were they doing for a living when they moved to Cedar? My research says 97% of them were farming. Farming was a way of life. And so that's what people did and all the other occupations that people might have had on the side tied into the agricultural side. So if somebody had a mill for sorghum, as James DeLong did, uh, he was growing sorghum and he also had a mill. And then maybe he would take in sorghum from other people and process it. So your side jobs are benefiting the community as well. Yes, right. What other uh, businesses and things were, were being founded in Cedar to make it this cohesive place? Well, one thing was the creamery. And actually there is still a, a big old creamery building standing. It's the second building that served that function. The first one burned down. But the creamery was vital. Uh, most people had dairy cows among their livestock and the milk would be collected every day and processed in some way at the creamery. It's not clear to me exactly to what point they processed it. I don't think they made cheese or anything like that. But then it would be um, transported in the great big milk cans that you see at antique sales by train to the next destination, whether it was for consumption or for further processing. So the creamery was, a, was big, and it was part of a network of creameries in the rural area, the Twin Cities Milk Producers Association. There were usually two, uh, two grocery stores operating in town at, at one time or another. When I was a kid growing up, there was Pete's store and there was Heck's store. And each of them had had a series of owners over the generations. But I don't want to date you, but uh, when were you growing up? <laughs> <laughs> that would be the 1950s and 60s. Okay. <laughs> Another thing that might date me is the fact that uh, we were allowed to go to Heck's store because they did not sell beer, whereas Pete's store did sell beer. And uh, I came from a Methodist tea tolling family, so 
that was the story there. Uh, other businesses would have been the blacksmith shop and the all-important Farmers State Bank of Cedar. That was a point of pride for the community because that little bank had withstood the depression and its doors remained open and it did business as usual all through the depression. It was only one of two banks, I think in Anoka County, that uh, were able to stay solvent and open during the depression. And Mac, Julius McClintock, but we all called him Mac, was the owner of that bank, although it was a cooperative effort, but he was the president. He actually put some of his money into making, making that bank endure through the depression. He loaned some of his own personal money to people to help see them through, and those people never forgot that. That's impressive. You know, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned rediscovering a certain gentleman named Harry Edmonds. Tell me a little uh, bit more about that. Well, first you got to start with Cedar Cemetery, which is a little bit That's south. usually where you don't start. <laughs> well, it's a little bit south of the, the town of Cedar. And ever since I was a little kid, I remember seeing, and it's still there, this uh, formidable reddish stone marker for Harry Edmonds and his wife, Mabel. And it said on there something about the Rural Electric Association. And so I had this name in my mind, but I didn't remember ever seeing this man as a little child or, or anything. And it, this whole interest was revived when I was talking with Jim Cox, who was a our family and Jim Cox's family were lifelong friends in Cedar. And Jim mentioned in his memories as he was conversing with me, going to Harry Edmonds' house. And first of all, something that we, he wasn't used to was that Harry's wife was blind. And Harry and his wife were from England. And they had a black lab that was really friendly and Jim liked very much. But then he said to me how much Harry had done. And actually he'd worked with Jim's grandpa, Sam Orr, who was another leading figure in the community. And he said, let me show you this anniversary booklet from um, what used to be called the REA, um, became an Electric. In it was this great tribute to Harry Edmonds and it described all the things he had done in his life. So then I went on a search online and found out he was an exemplary farmer. He helped organize farmers. I realized for the first time where he had actually lived and where the farm had been. And then he was a prominent figure across the nation in rural electrification. Here this gentleman from England did all this and had his moment in the sun and when he and his wife died, just days apart, all that was left was that stone for me. And I wondered how many people who benefited from his dogged pioneering work have ever even heard of him. Because you were there growing up turning on the light every day. And right. That was because 
Harry was working to get electricity. That's right. And Harry and Mabel did not have any children, so there's no family to carry on that memory either. What do you want people to remember about Cedar? That's a good question because when you drive into Cedar now, it's much of it is very woebegone looking. Buildings on Main Street have been abandoned. And the depot is no longer there. The tiny depot was removed many years ago. The mail crane where the mail bag was hung is gone. There's no hint of its former modest grandeur. And so what I'd like people to know is that there's so much more than meets the eye when you go to Cedar now. There's a very rich history. What are your hopes for its future? When I was younger, I used to think if I had a million dollars, I would buy Cedar and I'd make it just the way it was when I was a little kid. But I think that's not a very realistic hope for the future. But it's interesting you ask that because somebody just mentioned to me that there's a new business going into Cedar. And he was very hopeful that maybe that would be a spark and some sort of entrepreneurial flame might spread down Main Street Cedar. Who knows? That would be great. Thank you so much for sharing all of these stories with us. And I look forward to reading your official history of Cedar once all of the research is done and it, it'll, it'll come together. <laughs> Thanks for the encouragement. And we'll have it here. We'll announce it here. With... Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Linda, and uh, we'll talk next time. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. Hello, my name is Diana Nurberg, and I'm a librarian for the Anoka County Library. The following are some suggested resources related to this episode. First, we have My Grandfather's Knocking Sticks, Ojibwe Family Life and Labor on the Reservation by Brenda J. Child. In this episode of History 21, Rogers mentions the myriad European settlers who inhabited the town, but also notes the indigenous people who were a major part of the landscape. In this book, learn about the Ojibwe indigenous people of Minnesota and their ways of life before and after colonization. This book pays special attention to the labor practices before and after and how gender has also played a significant role in the changes. Next, we have Minnesota's Lost Towns, Central Edition by Rhonda Folks. The second in a series of books about ghost towns in Minnesota by Rhonda Folks Minnesota's Lost Town Central Edition defines and discusses ghost towns and highlights Cedar as one such town. Anoka County history buffs will also likely recognize some other locations mentioned in this book. Next we have Railroads, Trains, and Depots, The Way It Was by Raymond A. Crippen. Published by the Nobles County Historical Society and written by Worthington, Minnesota native Raymond Crippen, this book highlights the many ways in which railroads and depots shape and have shaped our towns. Finally, we have Neither Snow Nor Rain, A History of the United States Postal Service by Devin Leonard. 
This comprehensive history of the U.S. Postal Service provides context for why and how the post offices were often so central to small towns in the early 1900s. We hope you enjoy these resources. For more information, visit or call your local library. We're here to help. Until next time, happy learning. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anocacountyhistory.org. Wouldn't it be fun if Cedar revitalized and the, the main street businesses started up again and suddenly there was like a, a Cedar revolution? I love that. And we can follow its history in a whole new way. Linda's book will get even longer. Well, it we're all building blocks of each other, right? So like she was saying, her story bases itself on people going back so many years and so many generations that to think forward and how those stories are going to continue to build on each other. It's that's why I personally love history. I also love the little moments of realizing that this street that I've driven down wasn't always called what I think it was, what it's called today. Like Sims Road actually being Homer Lee Road. The pieces of history that I just had no idea about really get to me. It's fun also when you drive down a road and you have the name and you never know who that name is, then all of a sudden you know about that. Yes. So we've gotten the county fair done. We're doing all the podcasts. We're thinking all the things. We've got the threshing show. Oh my goodness. We're, we're busy, busy bees. <laughs> it's amazing because, you know, history, we talked to lots of dead people. How can we be this busy? Oh, we'll talk to the auditors about that. Well, <laughs> we're always busy over here. And we've got Wargo Nature Center. Oh. We're going to be at their heritage lab. Yes. It, and the big ghostly elephant in the room. A big white ghostly elephant, perhaps? Ghost tours! Uh, we're starting up the ghost tours in September and October. Tickets are already on sale. And, and being uh, sold. And being sold. They sell out quick. So get on that if you want to reserve a specific date. And... Our hours at the museum are going to change in September to go along with our ghost tours. So if you are thinking about dropping by to see the exhibit or, you know, our lovely selves, uh, double check the hours because September and October, they change to Wednesday, 10 to 4, and Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 1 to 7.30. To accommodate our ghosts, to our docents, our volunteers. Thank you ever so much. We couldn't do it without you. Yay. I think we hit all of the things. We totally hit all of the things. We got more things on the website. It's growing every day. Thank you, everybody, for listening and uh, enjoying our podcast. Check out the show notes for some pictures of Cedar, the adorable picture of Linda as a little girl. And if you want to check out the full conversation, uh, you can always find it on our vault for vault members. Sounds like a plan. Thanks so much for your time, Sarah. See you next time. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anocacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. 
We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21, The Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future. <laughs>